Ah, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. What do I got for you today? We're going to be talking about the riots in Ireland and so the trajectory that set uh, Europe on. We're going to be talking about the ceasefire, which has been reached in Gaza. And then we'll talk about the resource dimensions of the war in Gaza. All that and more coming up. Alrighty, let's get into the rapid fire news, shall we? So, we have. Oh, well, let me scope here. We have skirmishing. Skirmishing in Kashmir, which has left five Indian soldiers dead. The Indian government said they claimed to have killed about two separatist militants. That's a, a not a very good ratio, uh, especially considering the size of Kashmir itself and the potential pool of these militants that they are supposedly fighting in this. They, they, they've been struggling in the, the Kashmir region for a while now. Uh, I say struggling, but they're trying to assert their authority over it uh, against what is an insurgency against them. And this is probably, the fighting here is probably connected to the Sikhs. Uh, well, actually, you know what? Let me, let me not just go making random claims. Let's, I know where Kashmir is, but I keep forgetting where... Uh, where the Sikh territories of India are. But yeah, they've been getting into various skirmishes in Kashmir for a long time. And, well, we could see that they are still struggling. I mean, uh, they, they're they getting into skirmishes here. They get into skirmishes with China every now and then as well. But it seems like India's entire northern border, uh, particularly along the Himalayas and in the Himalayas, is just constantly, uh, they're constantly being pressed. You know, like... They're, they're constantly, constantly being pressed because they struggle to extend their own influence to the reaches of their borders. The coastline is easy because there's no coastal states, but they really struggle to get to the north in a way that, well, at least on paper, it doesn't seem like Pakistan or China struggle to do themselves. Maybe that's just because Pakistan is, you know, more consolidated as a state, but there's a billion and a half people in India. I mean, it, at some point, at some point, that's got to count for something. And I suppose it does. I mean, it's not like there's going to be, uh, even if you have uh, these sort of uh, loss-win ratios, these where you, you lose five men to kill two separatists, well, there's a billion and a half Indians, so... I suppose in, in when the war of attrition, if you're fighting it that way, you can still win, but it's just uh, not very efficient. I'll say that much. It's the way in which they're going about this is not very efficient. And from what I can see now, uh, Khalistan, yes, it does look like Khalistan is up north, though not quite in Kashmir. So. I'll retract that statement. I'm not entirely sure if they're fighting Sikhs in Kashmir, but it could be possible. Or these are just two separate separatist groups that they're dealing with in the north. And you know what? If that's the case, it might actually uh, it might actually explain why they struggle so much because you're fighting two insurgencies for the price of one, on top of having to deal with China and Pakistan, 
having overlapping claims to parts of Kashmir themselves, of which the Chinese are more able to enforce, and the, the Pakistani claims are so far to the north and so hard to enforce for the Indians, uh, when, and partially hard for the, the Pakistanis to enforce them themselves, that it's sort of a gray zone. But skirmishes after skirmishes, and speaking of uh, Indian separatist groups, we have, what is it, that another Sikh, another Sikh separatist in Canada, except this time, there, there was a, instead of the Indian government succeeding in assassinating him and then getting called out by the Canadians for doing that, the U.S. has reportedly stopped an attempt by the Indian government to assassinate another Sikh separatist in Canada. Now, this is becoming a, a diplomatic thing now. This, it's, I'm not sure if it's going to be fallout yet, yet, but it's looking like it's a thing now. So we'll see where this goes. And while I do understand if you're Canada and the United States, I do believe that we are actually doing the right thing here because we can't have foreign nations just carrying out extrajudicial assassinations in our country or in our hemisphere. Like, I, I, this is a sort of a clash of interests between us and India. The Indians want the Sikh separatists dead and, well, for obvious reasons, and they don't really want to leave open the chance these guys coming back and causing trouble later on. But this is our hemisphere, right? So in this specific case, even though this is going to lead to problems and tensions, I do believe that we have actually done the right thing here. Although, although perhaps it could have been kept on the down low instead of being put on blast. Now that might cause unnecessary damage between us and the Indians. Because if it's, if it's just a, you tried to assassinate this person, but this is our hemisphere, this is our neighbor, uh, Canada is our ally, uh, one good ally that I would, <laughs> I do consent to having, because, well, they're here. You have to defend Canada to defend the United States. It's just that simple. Uh, and the same extends to the rest of the Americas. Like this, this, the new world, that is American national security, not the Middle East, not Europe, not the Indo-Pacific region none of these other places around the world this is where our key interests are don't let anyone tell you different but we could have kept this on the down low right and it could have just been a, okay this is your interest these are our interests we can all see how these clash nothing personal here it's you didn't do us any harm we didn't do you any harm but we we can't just let this slide you know you know you know, because these things happen between countries. Countries have different interests, and those interests clash. And this is an instance where our interests do legitimately clash with the Indians. And, and I'm talking legitimate interests here, not the, the fake interests where, oh, we, we want to bring freedom and democracy to the world, and, oh, we have red lines on the other side of the planet. Like, not, none of these fake interests that people just let slide off the tongue when they talk about U.S. foreign policy. No, real interests the Monroe Doctrine, real interests. But yeah, another another uh, incident. And we'll see if this sort of continues on, because it wasn't that long ago, again, when there was a, another Sikh separatist that was assassinated by the Indian government, and the Canadians put them on blast for doing that. I think putting them on blast is going to unnecessarily damage relations. We could keep this on the down low, but in the end, I do approve of the action of stopping this from happening. 
regardless of where you stand on the issue of the Sikh separatists, that quite frankly has nothing to do with us or Canada for that matter. Um, and as far as the Canadians are concerned, these are Canadian citizens. You like you just yeah, can't just come over here assassinating your citizen. Uh, but the danger there is by exposing it and putting it on blast, you are enabling forces of war to be levied against India. That is unnecessary. But when you put it out there, when you put it on blast like that for the entire public to see, well, that is an act of war. You've tried to assassinate one of our citizens. That's an act of war. And so now you can sort of see how keeping it on the down low might actually be best for everyone, even if the actions carried out by the US and Canadian governments were appropriate for the situation up to the point of, you know, putting India on blast. So a clash of interests and it's we'll see if this is a thing now it's a, or if this is sort of just a flash in the pan and then we go back to you know normal people relations with india but i don't know i don't know it seems like we're just going out of our way to create problems at this point and, and considering that india isn't is no longer on board the anti-china coalition idea because they rightfully understand that they'd be doing the heavy lifting there as the one of the only countries that actually borders china well you know on land <laughs> where the chinese army can actually get you yeah i think india is making a smart move by not joining the the anti-china coalition granted we'll see how they manage their relationship with china i think it's going to be a, a rivalry we'll see how that rivalry manifests i think it's going to manifest in a, a competition for influence in uh indochina you know thailand burma vietnam Cambodia, etc. Maybe it'll extend into ASEAN, you know, where in Southeast Asia, and we it's already extended into the Himalayas between Bhutan and Nepal. There's already clashes between them over where exactly the border is, and there's disputes over Kashmir. And with India getting on board this India Middle East Europe corridor, this economic corridor, while that is complementary to the Belt and Road, not contradictory it's complementary just like the how the russians want to do energy deals it does hint at a future where india and china are going to be constantly rivals for economic and cultural influence in various parts of the world starting with southeast asia but i don't but i don't think that uh they're going to be going along with the anti-china coalition they're obviously not trying to get into a war with china like they could probably defend themselves. There is the Himalayas between them and China. They could defend themselves, even if the Chinese did get through the Himalayas. But at that point, you're talking about an ungodly war between two countries with a billion and a half people. Like you can only imagine what the casualty numbers are going to look like in a matter of days. You drop a bomb on a city and that's 100,000 people. But yeah. Uh, very interesting happenings going on with India. And, you know, it's, since we take that step back and we see how this is going on, uh, we have another border skirmish taking place, uh, not that far away from India, but actually between Pakistan and Afghanistan, where the Pakistani military claims to have killed eight local Taliban fighters. Now, uh, an interesting feature of Afghanistan ever since the Islamic Emirate came back to power, and that's the Taliban, an uh, interesting feature of Afghanistan is that they've been sort of border skirmishing with just about everybody since they came to power. And this is probably from them trying to consolidate control over their own country. Uh, perhaps parts of their 
formerly insurgent group now turned professional military uh not acting so professional on the borderlands uh and perhaps the breakdown of discipline leads to these shootouts perhaps they have different ideas of where exactly the border is when that's a common theme when you're looking at these mountainous countries when it's like okay but where exactly is the border is it that mountain or that mountain okay now where exactly on said mountain does the border begin does it go over the mountain or do we have this half of the mountain and you have uh, a third you know it, it gets complicated when you're <laughs> when you're dealing with uh, mountain borders they're, they're not always as convenient as they would be in say in the ancient world where it's like okay well there's the mountain line no one can cross it anyway so that's the border you know but yeah uh, Afghanistan's been skirmishing with Iran. It, that that was the start. It started with Iran, and well, actually, did it start with Iran? No, there was skirmishing with Pakistan first, and then that sort of died down. That died down quickly. Then they were skirmishing with Iran. Uh, I don't remember them getting into too many skirmishes with their northern neighbors in in uh, Central Asia, like Turkmenistan, uh, Kyrgyzstan, etc., or Tajikistan. Uh, Wait, did they even have a border with Tajikistan? Uh, let me look at this. Because uh, I forget if it's Tajikistan or Uzbekistan. I think it's Uzbekistan that they actually have the border with. But I, I don't remember them getting into skirmishes with any of them. But they have been getting into repeated skirmishes between Pakistan and Iran. Oh, okay, so it's Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, and Tajikistan. They, don't, they do not have a border with Kyrgyzstan. Kyrgyzstan is further to the north. I always get Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan's place mixed up unless I'm looking at a map. In which case, I can point them out to you without seeing the name on the map, but I, you know, going off memory, I, it's a bit of a struggle. But yeah, they've been they've been skirmishing a lot. Lots of border skirmishes in this part of the world. Uh, although the Afghan situation is more understandable than the Indians, you, you'd think that having a billion and a half people would make it really easy to consolidate control. But then again, you have to think about where exactly those billion and a half people live. And just like China, the Indian population is concentrated in certain places of the country. And there are parts that are more sparsely populated. And for India, that happens to be the border with Pakistan and Kashmir, which is unfortunately for them exactly where their uh, separatists are and where all their border troubles are. But I'll digress. Uh, in other news, we have Gert Wilders uh, winning big in the Dutch elections uh, with his party, the Dutch Farmers Party, winning 37 seats out of the 150. So if you remember a while back, what was it, like a year ago, the Dutch Farmers Party, they won a whole bunch of seats in the Dutch Senate. So now here they are making big gains in the parliament as a whole essentially setting the stage for them to become perhaps in the near future a dominant governing force in the netherlands and when we understand that these are parliamentary systems and how usually these sorts of systems are really really fractured like the uk is not a good example of the parliamentary system at play because they they have two parties just like we do uh now our system is different than theirs their system isn't supposed to have two parties it's, it's really not but then again they, they had the parliament before anybody else and they they've it's been this way for a while so england is a very peculiar case but most other parliamentary systems have a lot of other different parties and those parties have to form a coalition 
whenever they want to put a, a government together. And that's what they, that's to us will be the, uh, the equivalent of an administration. If they want to put an administration together, they call it a government. If they want to put an administration together, they have to form a coalition with other parties uh, after the election. Because usually someone doesn't get like 50% for a single party. Uh, and they usually don't get it in two chambers either. So you have to form a coalition. And you have to, you have, it's more complicated than it is in the United States. Uh, but yeah, with winning as big as he has now, and this is sort of the second big win for the Farmers Party, it is possible considering that they have they're sitting on about what a fifth, uh, yeah, about a fifth, the thirty-seven out of fifty, so over a fifth of the total seats. It's possible that they could eventually get to that point where they have the 50% needed to sort of rule by mandate. We'll see if they get there. Uh, sort of doing the math in my head here, 150, you cut that in half, that's 75. Then you cut that in half again, 32. So they have actually uh, over, over a quarter, not just 20%, but they actually have over 25% of the total number of seats in this place. So now granted they'd have to double the size of their party and their reach across the Netherlands to get there, but it's a possibility. It is a distinct possibility now, especially as discontent for the previous world order grows. Like, and I think I'll talk more about this towards the end of the episode and how the world I say it every time when I end the episode, we're like, the world is changing, but it, it really is changing, and in it's manifesting in different ways, and a lot of the, anal the analysis you get today just isn't, it's just not suited for what we're witnessing. It's sort of obsolete almost as soon as we get it. Now, I'll if I have the time, and I probably will, I'll dig into that towards the end of the episode, but yeah, it's... The world is really changing, and for us in America, it is It is so glorious. It's just so glorious. Like we'll, we'll obviously keep our eyes on things happening around the world. Like we just watched the multipolar world manifest itself independently of Russia and China over in the Middle East, with Iran and Arabia beginning this sort of strategic partnership of their own, forming a block of Arab and Islamic countries and that's an entire that's two civilizations in one and with turkey at their side that's three it's this massive massive pan islamic coalition that those two together can govern and by govern i don't mean like directly i mean govern as in lead huge huge deal just took place that we talked about last week with the great summit uh, the great the pan I, I honestly don't even know what's called the the arab islamic summit like i, I hmm I, i'm still trying to come up with like a, a fancy name for it but i think that the great arab islam summit might actually be the the working title here but yeah you see these massive developments around the world and in america it's manifesting in the second american revolution it's truly glorious when you see the new yorkers and the chicagoans <laughs> and the lovely residents of Martha's Vineyard talking about how they don't want any more immigrants and how they need to go back to where they came from. <sighs> and then you have New Mexico where the governor tried to ban guns and then the citizens pulled up to the state capitol 
guns uh, open carrying their guns and then sat there for like an hour uh, to make the to drive home the point and the governor went in basically went into exile for like a few days and then she came back it's wild and it's lovely to see uh even now when you're watching the the breakdown of the current political order in the united states where old the old structures the foundations of the parties have just broken down and all these assumptions that used to be taken for granted are no longer true like and on the other side of this you're going to get a very different american electorate people like it's like when you freeze a frog well like if you were to freeze a whole bunch of frogs in ice right and you freeze them you cut cut the ice into blocks where you can see which frogs are going to go where and, and you know and then all of a sudden the ice starts to melt except the frogs are not it's one of those frogs i think it's like a tree frog where they can sit there be frozen for uh months on end because they have like antifreeze in their blood really cool but like by then once the ice thaws and they start moving around again now you have a bunch of frogs jumping everywhere and the frogs and i'm talking about the american voters here they end up in places that you never would have expected to find them that's what's happening to the american voter base right now and i won't and i won't be surprised if a lot of people that we would have never expected to ever vote republican in their life swing for trump that's where it's going trump will usher in the new era uh well yeah yeah he, he'll usher in the new era but in many ways the era it's he's more of a steward because the era has come the the time for this idea has come the time for the end of this crusade for democracy that that bastard wilson put us onto has come the time for these ideas of sound money limited governance limited american role on the world stage these the time for these ideas have come and there's no force capable of stopping that now but uh, again I'll, I'll sort of dive into that towards the end of the episode but yeah, we have Garrett Wilders winning the Dutch elections. We have Christopher Luxon becoming the new prime minister of Zealand. And yeah, we, we lots of and go looking at uh, the election of what was his name? Javier Mille. I uh, saw a couple of videos of him now. He wants to abolish a bunch of federal agencies in Argentina. And you know what? I 100 percent agree <laughs> except uh, you know in, in the american context i agree we, we we have a whole bunch of federal institutions we need to be abolishing too uh, the fed the fbi the cia the nsa the nhs so many just so many we, just, we can just go on and on about we can we can get rid of them <laughs> we can get rid of them hell i say get rid of the pentagon but yeah uh when you see the election of that guy and then you look at the election of uh Bukele in El Salvador and how and the sort of the major economic changes that they're making this sort of turn away from more leftist economic policy is an interesting one now obviously Venezuela is going to be the exception there unless something happens in Venezuela which would be wild uh, I'm not holding my breath on Venezuela I think that they'll Venezuela will do what Venezuela wants to do I don't think we need to be overthrowing their government, though they can handle that themselves. But we are starting to see some reorientations and major moves in the new world itself. Like I name a name, name 
Name a moment in time when Latin America, well, and North or South America, was relevant historically prior to the colonial era. And then after the establishment of the United States, name a moment in time where everything south of our border, or anything south of our border for that matter, was relevant historically. You'd, you'll be hard pressed, aside from maybe the Falklands War, where Argentina lost. And uh, I could say Argentina lost. Really, it's because we betrayed them. And we allowed a foreign power to keep their colony in our hemisphere. We failed the Argentinians, is what happened, uh, under the auspices of freedom and democracy. Oh, wasted chance, wasted opportunity. But alas, can't rewrite history. But you can make new history, and that's what's happening in Latin America right now. You see Brazil uh, playing a bigger role in the BRICS. They've been a part of the BRICS this entire time, and they're playing a bigger role now. Argentina is relevant because they were going to join the BRICS. Now with uh, Millet, they're not going to join the BRICS. They want to use the U.S. dollar as their currency. Maybe this is a stopgap. Maybe it's a long term. We'll see. Uh, for their sake, I hope, I hope they know what they're doing because uh, we have an inflation issue in the United States. But I th I'm starting to see the puzzles of a picture. Now, maybe uh, maybe because since there's only like three pieces here, I'm not seeing the right picture, but I'm starting to see a new world, a new figure, literally and figuratively, because it's the new world, ironically, but a new world specifically in the realm of economics and trade and trade relations and currencies, I'm starting to see a whole entire world, self-contained world being built up in the new, in the new world. Now, again, it's, it's, it's incredible to watch. And I think that the United States, once, you know, we eject all this nonsense from our government with the re-election of Trump, and we get back to business and we get to the reindustrialization of the United States, I think we're going to see a massive acceleration of these trends in the new world, where we're going to see a massive trade block emerge in the new world. And it's going to be free markets, it's going to be wealth, prosperity, it's going to be manufacturing, the extraction of resources, we're going to see railroads getting built. Uh, a lot of that's going to start with the United States, of course, and hell, Depending on how far it goes, we might even see pipelines getting built, transcontinental pipelines running from north to south and from south to north. Although probably most likely from north to south, because you know, because uh, the we don't necessarily need to import their oil. But, you know, we could have Venezuela a pipeline from Venezuela going up to the Gulf where we have the refineries, and then we have our pipelines going down to the south into Mexico and Brazil. We could see something like that happen in the Americas. Uh, and it'll be a whole self-contained world similar to how the East is a self-contained world and how the Middle East is a self-contained world. There and there's and then the West, you know. These worlds do interact and there's trade between them, but the events that happen in one are largely self-contained unless they happen on sort of the border zone between this these civilizational worlds, right? I think something similar is being built up here in the New World, in North and South America. And I think the reindustrialization of the United States is going to put that process into high fucking gear, and it'll be so magnificent to watch. But, uh, <laughs> but alas, alas, that, that's just me speculating, and we'll have to see how this plays out. Uh, but we are heading into 2024. The empire is being put under siege. But... 
I think that that might be some uh, another slept on detail of the near future that will be very interesting to look forward to. That and obviously the big one. Well, I say obviously. If it was obvious, it wouldn't be slept on. But the the other big one that I'm looking at right now is the prominence, the rise to prominence of the Middle East as the sort of dark horse of the 21st century. I think they're going to have a really, really good time in the 21st century, especially once this Israel stuff is over and they go back to doing business and making peace. But that's all I'll say. And we'll uh, we'll talk about the riots in Ireland when we get to the meat of this episode in just a moment. All right, so we'll get into the first topic of today's, uh, well, the first topic of the meat segment, uh, which is the riots in Ireland. Uh, so last week, a mass stabbing took place in Ireland, leaving three children and two adults in critical condition because it, it took place at a school. Uh, you can believe it. Really nasty shit. Now, the attacker is alleged, is alleged because I, I read through a couple sources. Uh, I listened to the, the podcast Lotus Eaters talk about it. They claim that he was uh, an Algerian immigrant who was reportedly supposed to be deported back in 2003, which, if true, would explain the outrage surrounding the crime, although the articles I read didn't specifically mention his ethnicity or his background. So I'll put that out there as a sort of disclaimer. I do not have all the specific details on this, but I think that that, if true, that he was an Algerian immigrant, it would more likely explain why the riots happened, if that makes sense. Now, I don't know if it is true, because again, the, the news articles that I read to try to get more information on this did not mention his ethnicity. And they were very, very vague about who this man was, and honestly, it, it was hard to get get a detail as to whether or not it was a man at all. Uh, it was very strange, and they seemed more intent on uh, pooping on the rioters who uh, were upset about children getting stabbed, uh, and I'll get into that in just a minute. But just a disclaimer here, we do not have all the facts on this story, but allegedly he is an Algerian immigrant who was supposed to be deported back in 2003, but was allowed to stay, and as a result of that, five people are in critical condition, three of which being children. Now, and again, if that is the true context of this situation, we can understand exactly how we got to where we are. Someone who wasn't supposed to be there committing a heinous crime after being allowed to stay for whatever reason. Like, if, you're, if you came to the conclusion that he needed to be deported, I'm assuming that it was for a reason and he was allowed to stay, and that decision by the the Irish government has led to this crisis here. Now, and of course, that would mean that this would not have happened had the man been deported, or perhaps someone else would have done the crime in a different way, in a different time, but at that point, it'd be a, a completely different crime. This crime specifically only happened because this man was not deported. Again, assuming that the information that I just went through was is true, that he's an Algerian immigrant. Now, the Irish government, in response, has essentially blamed the public for the problem, if you can believe it. And I'm sure that those of you who are listening to this podcast are perfectly capable of believing that governments, particularly those in Europe and the United States, would do this. Because they would, and they do. <laughs> so, 
they've essentially tried to make the public out to be the vil- the, the bad guys here. And it's, it is gaslighting and manipulation on a degree that it, you'd think that you would have sort of a better media narrative to cover this up, you know, to get people to go along with this. But it's just so out in the open. It's so naked that it's sort of jarring to see. It's like, well, I expect you to try to manipulate me, but I didn't expect you to, you know, you, you put some effort into it. I mean, g- give me a narrative. Give me, give me a juicy little uh, talking point to go off of, you know. Hit, hit me with the talking points. Oh, you're you're bigoted because you you hate the immigrants. Oh, he he was struggling for his family. You know, he well that kid stole some pocket change from him. You <laughs> you know, give me <laughs> that's so petty. That's so wrong. But there's usually some sweet little narrative to go along with these to paper over the hard reality of what just happened, and you see it with. With the with gun violence in the United States, it's all oh, it's the guns, it's the guns. See, this is why you have to get the guns away, and this is why you, we have to protect the schools. We you don't want more children to die, so you have to give up your Second Amendment right. You know, there's usually a a a talking point that the normies can buy into attached to the response here. There's no there's none of that. There is none of that. The Irish government is literally just blaming the public for the problem. Uh, they've even levied accusations of racism against their own people in response to the riots. Like uh, the police commissioner, he said, quote, they are disgraceful scenes. And he's talking about the rioters uh, burning down cars and flipping them. He said, quote, they are disgraceful scenes. We have a complete lunatic hooligan faction driven by far-right ideology engaged in serious violence, end quote. Now, what exactly is far-right about being outraged over a handful of people being stabbed, especially when three of them are children? Is that a, is being upset over grown adults harming children a far-right idea? Shoot, you're you might have a really good job as the executive sales officer for the far right. Far right incorporated wants to hear your ideas. You're, you're, you're the new head of marketing for the far right now. Cause if that's a far right idea, don't be surprised if a lot of people end up being far right by that definition. But this is the best they've got. You're just gonna, you're just gonna call everybody far right. Cause they, they got upset about children being stabbed. I, I don't want to downplay the, the two adults that got stabbed because it was a woman and uh, I believe a man in his 40s. But uh, and I, again, I don't want to downplay those, but three kids got stabbed. That should never happen. Like it, it'd be one thing, but if it was between adults, right? It's one thing if it's between adults. We, we understand there's violence between adults. We understand it gets ugly in the real world. But the kids, people can't accept that. No rational person is going to sit there and accept that. So, and your response to the people who are going to express views similar to what I've just expressed to you, your response is just to call them far right. You haven't addressed anything. You haven't addressed a single concern. You haven't, you haven't apologized. 
for for this happening you know the, the the usual oh i'm so sorry that this happened to you yada 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 you haven't said that you you're just gonna insult me you're, you're just gonna insult me three kids get stabbed two adults and your reflex is to insult me the voter who puts you in power and not the criminal who did this not a word has been said about the criminal it's all about oh we, we don't want uh hate to spread about migrants we don't want anti-migrant hate we we don't want this far-right ideology to spread well how do you think that ideology is going to spread if there are more crimes like this because you don't want to enforce the law or if there are less crimes like this because you do enforce the law in which scenario is far-right ideology going to spread more because it given the fact that you have riots in your streets i'd say that the first scenario where you don't enforce the law and migrants who probably shouldn't have gotten into the country uh based off of any kind of background check it, it, by having them committing crimes and allowing them to commit these crimes allowing them into the country where they do commit these crimes later that seems to be the root of the problem if you don't want the the irish public going far right and starting to starting to build up some anti-immigrant views well perhaps you don't want to bring in violent immigrants and perhaps you don't want to bring in a hundred thousand uh immigrants into a country of what six million we'll look we'll go ahead and look that up that's a number that i've seen bounced around although I think some people are counting Northern Ireland and Ireland together. So we'll just go ahead and look up the population of Ireland. But I believe it is not that big at all. Fucking uh, population. We're doing a whole lot of a whole lot of Google searches today. A lot of Google searches today. Uh, but I think it's worth it. Population of Ireland by itself is five million. Five million. So a hundred thousand immigrants into a, a population of five million. Now, that's a lot of people. That is a, a lot, a lot of people for a country that size. Like that'd be twenty percent. Was that five percent? If it's five million, five hundred thousand, fifty thousand. Every 50,000 would be 1% of 5 million. So you brought in 100,000 immigrants. That is, that's a whole 2% of your to total population you've just immigrated in, in an instant. That's a massive dis disproportionate, that's a massive proportion of people. That's a massive number of people, I should say, proportionate to your population. Maybe don't do that. If you don't want people to start developing views that are not so nice towards immigrants, like there, there's a lot of accountability that needs to be had and someone who has, so let's say an intention of bringing that accountability and did bring that accountability is Conor McGregor of all people. And it's, it's really telling too, that an Irish American had to take the Irish government to task because you know the Irish themselves didn't. But you know what? I'll, I'll just say like this: America is the China of the West. All right. 
or the China of the West. And I think Brazil, either Brazil or Mexico will be our India, you know. But, uh, you know, we're, we're just we're just influential like that. You know, and I don't I do not consent to being involved in there. But, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> ideas, ideas will span across oceans and that. Uh, but I'll digress. Conor McGregor, he took to Twitter or X, as it's now called. He took to Twitter and he said this, quote, blame anyone but themselves. Typical Worthless you are, Michael. Worthless and spineless. Ryan Castley called you all out last week, grieving the love of his life, stolen by pawn scum. Nothing but waffle, nothing but waffle from you all since zero action. Everything from our lax border with gravy train benefits to our pitiful mental health services to our country in flames is on your watch and still no plan of action. Where is our plan of action? What are we going to do to ensure this stops happening? How are we going to ensure this ceases to continue in our country? Ireland is fed up with you and your type. We are not stopping here until real change is implemented. We need safety. We need security. We need leadership. As of now, we have none of the three. Shame on you and your type. End quote. Putting the blame where the blame goes. Now, I would say that you, know, uh, you are American, sir. <laughs> You American, sir, but American Irish, look, you want to go fight for Ireland, you can do that in Ireland, right? But over here, you're American. Uh, that, that's, the, that's the only point of disagreement I have with him on this matter. Other than that, he's 100% right. Putting the blame where exactly where the blame goes. And of course, in exchange for this dose of accountability, the Irish government obviously opened up a criminal investigation into him. It's, it's just obvious. <laughs> That's crazy. That's crazy. He gave them a tongue bath on Twitter, hit them with the verbal dagger, stabbed them five times, stabbed them about as many times as people got stabbed in Ireland, which led to these riots. Except it hurt them instead of the reg instead of the commoners, and it, it was it was verbal rather than physical so of course the politicians were hurt more than the people who were stabbed at that school so because they were hurt obviously conor mcgregor now has to be put on a watch list he's not a terrorist and he needs to be on a list to be put into jail you know that, that's how it works you know if you hurt our feelings you go to jail all right but if you stab our people you're A-OK -okay in our books. Like, that's the message that the Irish government is sending here with the actions that they're doing. I don't think that that's so much intentional. I think they're just responding off of emotion and off of ideology. The ideology of we can't say anything bad about immigrants. If you have anything to say about it, you're white, you're wrong, you're racist, you know, ideology. We're not going to solve the problem by getting control of the border because that would be racist towards all the brown people of the world, the oppressed peoples of the world. 
you have to let them into your country. So ideology is one thing that's blocking them. And the other thing is emotion. He put the blame where the blame goes, and he made them out to be trash. He, he, in no uncertain terms, he made them out to be trash and basically said they're derelict in their duty and said that the, the deaths... Well, actually, I'm not entirely sure the people who got stabbed died, so I won't say deaths, but that this incident, this stabbing, and the, the riots that resulted from it, all of this, he's saying, is your fault, Irish government. Your lack of attention to detail, your failure to do your job and keep Ireland safe, your lack of a, a plan of action, in his words, and your, the fact that you still have no plan of action to prevent this from happening again, well, this is your fault. You're the one to blame. Why didn't you get the situation under control? Why do you have 100,000 immigrants in a place where they don't need to be? Why are you not enforcing the law? Why are you not protecting your citizens? He put the blame exactly where the blame goes and called them out on every failure that they that they had leading up to this crisis. So, of course, they put them on a watch list. <laughs> I, I say a watch list, but they're, they, they're doing a criminal investigation into him. Uh, how they're going to get him, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, he lives in the United States because that's where he works. Yeah, he... He beats the fuck out of people for a living. I don't. I don't know what exactly they're hoping to achieve here, but probably just to keep him from coming back to Ireland. So, Conor McGregor has uh, unofficially been exiled from Ireland, uh, even though he hasn't been living there. But I'll digress. That is a terrible look, because that's your response. Your response is not to solve the problem. Your response is to open up a criminal investigation to the guy who has accurately identified the problem and the root cause of it, which is you, the government, because you don't want to do your job. You are derelict in your duty, and that has led to a chain of events that brought us this mass stabbing. And instead of looking in the mirror, instead of doing some self-reflection, instead of, you know, doing a government reshuffle, you know, changing up the policies a little bit, Getting control of the border, which is so unbelievably easy. Like, I just don't understand how countries like Britain and Ireland can even have immigration problems. Like, United States, we have a land border. Like, come on now. We can have illegal immigration. You people are an island. Get it together. <laughs> Get it to fucking together. I, I don't understand. I really don't. They want the problem. They want the problem, okay? Here, it's our politicians want the problem as well, but at the very least, you can explain it away. Well, we can't po we can't measure and monitor all 2,000 miles of border, so of course we're going to build the wall, and then we'll, that won't be an issue. Granted, if we had the military on our border like it used to be, we, it wouldn't be an issue either. But you're an island. Get it together. Like, you can stop this at any moment in time. We have to put effort in, okay? Like, that wall is going to cost money. We have to try to get this under control. You, you're an island. <laughs> I I can't take these people seriously. I, I really can't. But, yeah, instead of dealing with the problem, they want to open up a criminal investigation into the guy who has accurately identified the root cause of the problem and grilled them on what the proper response should be. Where is our plan of action?
You have no plan. You have no plan of action. So I'm going to ask again, well, what is the plan of action? They don't know. And they have no intention of making one. That's the, that's the signals being sent here with their response to call the rioters racist and bigot and uh, adherents of far right ideology because they got upset and really fucking mad about children getting stabbed. And then they want to open up a criminal investigation into the guy who who called them out on Twitter. It, he didn't even show up and, and like punch him in the face and said, get your shit together. No, he he gave them a tongue bath on Twitter. And for the crime, for the crime of embarrassing them on Twitter and ratioing them, he's now in the criminal investigation. It's like, where are your priorities? Well, wherever they are, it's clearly not on the people of Ireland. That much is self-evident. But my goodness. But yeah, Conor McGregor is 100% correct on all the points except for, you know, you're American. If you're going to be Irish, you can be Irish. But you, I, I don't condone you being both. But at the very least, at the very least, look, he's not trying to drag America into the problem. You know, so, uh, look. I'm perfectly fine. He's not he's not trying to drag us into the problems of Ireland. He's telling the Irish government to get it together. And I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Like cuz you so many other people like you look at the Israel Palestine, you look at Ukraine, uh, they're like, "Oh, what what's America going to do to help me? How are you going to bail me out?" No, 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 no. You look at you look at the Israel Sims and how they oh, America needs to help Israel because Israel's an ally and blah, 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 blah. if America doesn't help then then Israel's gonna have to flatten Gaza flatten half of Lebanon they're gonna have to wipe Iran off the face of the earth it's like okay well we just escalated to genocide so the well, wall okay now that's what you get <laughs> with most other people when they start talking about a problem with their home country. When they, they, they go, what's America going to do about this? Conor McGregor didn't do that. And I appreciate that a lot. I appreciate that shit a lot. He went straight to the heart of the problem. You're the government of Ireland. You're responsible. You do it. So they put him on a criminal investigation. <laughs> I just find that fact uh, comical. Because <laughs> that just screams that you have no ideas. That just screams you have no solutions. And above all, it's... It, really does scream that you have no intention of finding a solution to the problem that you would rather shoot the messenger than to get than to get it together it's it's comical <laughs> it's it, it's literally a case of going from zero to a hundred real quick and that's exactly what they did and for no reason he did he literally did them no wrong he literally did them no wrong, but he embarrassed them on social media. So now he's under criminal investigation. That's wild. But yeah, he's 100% right. 100% right. They're sitting there talking all this big talk and doing nothing. Not They have no plan of action. They have no solutions. They don't want to have solutions. They're not going to get new security. They're not going to get safety for their own citizens. And they don't have leadership. It's insane. Talk about putting the blame where the blame goes. Now, Ireland uh, is not going to be the first country to have these sorts of issues. I mean, we saw a couple months back with France damn near descending into a civil war when another race riot broke out between them and their immigrants. And you had roving bands of French people armed with any weapon they could get their hands on patrolling their neighborhoods to keep them from being burned down. It, 
France is going to be a very interesting case. It'll be a very interesting case. And again, Ireland will not be the first, is not the first and won't be the last because over the past few months, and I've seen it when I'm going over news to get uh, for the podcast, but I never really found a reason to report it because it seemed like a very mundane thing, but I suppose now it'd be a good time to bring it up, uh, that there's been a lot of Quran burnings going on in Denmark and Norway. I'm not entirely sure about Norway, but I know Denmark and Sweden, they've been burning Korans. I think, I think the other two, Finland and Norway, have also seen similar uh, events happen. But I know for a fact that it's been happening in Denmark and Sweden. It's been happening for months now, uh, particularly in Sweden, because they're they're fed up. They're fed up with living with these people who don't want to assimilate, who don't want to assimilate. And then they're burning. Now they're burning the Quran, the sort of symbol of the kinds of people that they've been allowing into their country. And I say kinds of people because it's uh, it's different peoples from across the Arab and Islamic world, but they're predominantly Muslim, predominantly Muslim, and they're burning the symbol of Islam, the Quran. Now, granted, I can only imagine that the Quran's sales must have gone up in order for this to happen. So at least the bookmakers, at least the bookmakers are getting off uh, with a, a buck or two. But yeah, this has been going on. So the fact that they're comfortable with doing that consistently over the course of months, and it has strained relations between uh, the Nordic countries and the Arab world, particularly with regards to Turkey and, and you know how Turkey's been sort of playing footsies with the idea of letting them into NATO. They let Finland in, now it's Sweden, and it's up to the, the Turkish parliament to approve that, and, uh, so Erdogan can say, oh, it's not in my hands anymore. But yeah, it's been straining relations there. So they're burning Qurans. France is getting into race riots that border on civil war. Germany, we'll see. Oh, we'll see. But the Poles have already decided that they weren't going to accept immigrants that weren't Christian and white. Uh, and that was an uh, issue that the EU had with them back in like 2018, 2019, uh, that they've maintained. The Hungarians are obviously the the ugly duck of the EU as far as the EU leadership is concerned because they reject everything that the EU stands for. <laughs> Every policy idea that the EU has, the Hungarians run contrary to it because the Hungarians aren't stupid. <laughs> but yeah, they, they've been a, a an unwanted child of the EU, if, if I have to make comparisons to how the EU views them. And then you had, and ironically, they the EU was endorsing when Greece built that wall to stop the migrants from coming in when Turkey decided that they were just going to open the floodgates. But yeah, and, and then you have Maloney winning in Italy. That was supposed to be a big deal. It turned out to be a bit of a dud. She'll probably be replaced with someone who does mean what they say. Or maybe they'll try their darndest to keep control of Italy, however they go. You have the, apparently the socialists losing big in Spain and someone else winning although we'll see how that works with the coalition but you a lot and, and then of course gert wilders in the netherlands with the farmers party so a lot of more right wing ideas the far right if you will coming to power in europe and then the big one will be the united states although that'll be for reasons independent of what we're seeing in europe Although there will be people who go out of their way to make the comparison, I don't think it'll be a very apt one. But yeah, we're seeing this trend go, 
And as time goes on, as mass immigration continues, as the consequences of mass immigration make themselves known and very present in various societies throughout Europe, Britain, France, and now Ireland in particular, the repercussions are going to start reverberating not just within these societies, but outside into other societies, because the riots in France carried over into Belgium, right? So the interweaving of the mass immigration problem will lead to an, a similarly interconnected reaction and a, a repulsion, the sort of, of the, the local ethnic groups, the French, the Germans, the Italians, the British, the Irish, what have you, uh, rejecting mass immigration and rejecting a lot of the immigrants and probably going on a deporting spree too, especially once they see the United States do it, because <laughs> that's what Trump has promised to do. We're going to see this happen. Like Ireland is not the beginning and it is far from the end. And I think that the response of the Irish government is also not the first and it will also not be the last government to behave in such a way to the demands of their people to get the situation under control. Ah. And but yeah, we're a lot of a lot of beef, a lot of beef being built up. I mean, a lot of these immigrants got real comfortable with shitting on the white people who own the countries that they moved to. And I'm using the term white as a sort of catch all because outside of America, white doesn't really exist. It's Irish, Dutch, Germans, Russians, etc. But you can only get away with abusing the dominant ethnicity of your host country for so long. Now, though, the, the whites, for lack of a better term, are starting to put their foot down and I see mass deportations in the future. Now, people can't see it now, but that's because people don't understand that we are in times of great change. And I'll, I'll get into that great change stuff toward the end of the video. But alas, uh, that's Ireland for you. Alrighty, so now we'll get into the ceasefire in Gaza. And let's just stop and appreciate that. A ceasefire in Gaza. My goodness, I could have, oh, I could have sworn that that was just an impossible thing. I thought, I could have sworn it could never happen. And it, it, I could have sworn, I could have sworn that destroying Hamas was the only way forward. Let this be a lesson. Peace is always worth the discussion, as Andrew Tate would say. Uh, he had a very heated and interesting interview with Piers Morgan. It was very entertaining to watch. I encourage you to watch it. Regardless of what your views on Andrew Tate are, he is, uh, again, more, he has again demonstrated a better command of the context surrounding Israel-Palestine than what you're going to get from a lot of these talking heads, uh, perhaps even myself included. So I encourage you to listen to what people are saying, uh, but I'll, I'll shout out the voices that I feel are constructive towards the understanding of context because context is very very important it, it's always one of the first things that get lost because you know truth is the first casualty of war but how do you get how do you know what the truth is you understand the context which is why context is always thrown out the window as well but yeah very 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 well understood he had a very good understanding of the context. He was more on the Palestinian side. 
uh, for a number of reasons of his own. And we even went over his initial comments on the war in Palestine back when it first broke out, where he and his brother also had a better take on the war back when it first broke out than what you got from a lot of these other commentators, particularly with Ben Shapiro and Jordan Peterson encouraging more violence, whereas they were saying, we're going to save, we're going to try to keep kids alive and there should be peace talks. And while Ben Shapiro sort of went on a tirade against peace and he even got into it with Candace Owens, which is another juicy beef that I, I indulged in over the course of the last week and a half. But alas, all this talk about never being able to get here, and here we are, a ceasefire. A ceasefire in Gaza. Because last week, Israel agreed to a four-day ceasefire for the release of 50 hostages. The ceasefire began on Friday. And as far as I managed to get, as far as I managed to get, I forgot to update these numbers before the podcast. But there were 13 Israeli hostages that were released. There were 11 Thai hostages that that have been released, uh, along with 39 Palestinians who were who have been released from Israeli captivity. Some of whom were children. So important details when they talk about savagery and barbarity on the Palestinian side. The Israelis had children in prison. So we'll just put, leave that on the table. So 39 Palestinians released, 13 Israeli hostages released, 11 Thai hostages released. Now so far, and this is even now, because I, don't know, I uh, so far no Americans have been let go. Uh, and of course, our government isn't saying anything about that, right? Uh, I, again, I, I don't have the exact numbers on who exactly has been released. I know that they was there was a, a bit of a friction between Israel and Hamas over the hostages, and there was a, a brief pause on the release of the hostages. I think that, that pause is uh, continued, although it may have ended. I haven't seen news saying that it ended, uh, but it... it could have ended so yeah there's uh, but the important thing is that we have the ceasefire right the important thing is we have the ceasefire but regardless of the specific numbers i am well aware of one number which is zero the total number of americans who've been released from captivity and of course our government being the america last as it is has said absolutely nothing about it. isn't it crazy that thailand can get their hostages before we can isn't that crazy we have two carrier battle groups off the coast of Israel, and we're going to be the last ones to get our hostages? Because like 240, 250 hostages were taken, 50 of them have been released, and about 50, from which is the last number I saw, were killed. Now, does that represent all of the Americans uh, who were taken captive? Maybe, but I don't think so. I think it'd be more a little more spread out than that. But it's a possibility. But at the very least, we could we could try to get our civilians back. We're, we're not even trying. And we have, we have all this force sitting there. And they're not even trying to get our, our people out. Which is another indication that their real goal is just to start a war. But I'll digress. Uh, in Gaza, about 34,000 gallons of fuel a day were being delivered along with other aid. And as of this morning, actually, uh, today, when I'm recording the podcast, as of this morning, 
the ceasefire has actually been extended for two more days. So it's not going to end until either Wednesday or th- perhaps Thursday morning. Oh, so it's been extended for two two more days. That was early in the, early in the morning today because, you know, they, uh, they're ahead of us in time way over there. So it, it could mean uh, that they started on Monday. And so the, the ceasefire, the two day extension is going to go Tuesday, Wednesday, and then the fighting begins on Thursday. Or it could be that uh, the fighting resumes on Wednesday because they, they counted today as one of the two days for the extension. But there is a lot of pressure being put on these two to keep the peace now that you have it. Because why let this slip? Why let the opportunity slip? I don't think that the Arab world is going to let the opportunity slip. I think that if there is a resumption of the war, it'll be because Israel says no to the peace. In which case, they're really not going to be painting a good picture for themselves when this thing is over. As a matter of fact, they might even forfeit their victimhood status, which they've already been in the process of doing by bombing the the lights out of Gaza. But if they say no to a peace, they say no to the peace, then then they'll really forfeit their victimhood status. But yeah. Uh, But alas, alas, the important thing is that we have the ceasefire and that the ceasefire has been extended. So we have nearly a week of peace, relative peace in Gaza. So with that being said, that being said, now we can sort of take a step back and look at all that has transpired. Because before now, we've had all this talk about how a ceasefire would be like surrendering to Hamas and terrorism and barbarism. And we can't negotiate with these these savage terrorist animals. All this talk about how we can't have peace, about, oh, no, we can't have it. No, Israel has to destroy Hamas first. Oh, you have to do the fighting. Otherwise, you can't have the peace. Oh, all this. And here we are with a ceasefire now extended to six days instead of just four. No bombs being dropped, no grenades being thrown, uh, uh, fewer bullets being fired, fewer lives being lost. The casualty casualty list in Gaza isn't going up by the thousands every day. And the deaths aren't going up by the hundreds every day. All this talk about how we couldn't have peace and why more war was necessary to get to peace and the greatest oxymoron of the age. War will bring you peace, they say. All this talk. And yet, here we are with a ceasefire. Hostages are being released. People in Gaza have stopped dying. Bodies are now being excavated from the rubble. Aid is being delivered. Peace, if only temporarily. So what happened? What happened? Did Israel surrender to Hamas? Did they surrender to barbarism? 
Did they lose the battle for civilization? No, because that was all some fucking bullshit. <laughs> no. The, in fact, they're probably achieving more now. They are probably achieving more now with this ceasefire than they were over the past two months. How many more hostages have they gotten back alive over the past four days than they have gotten over the course of this entire war? Well, this entire period of fighting, I should say, because the war actually goes back a, a long, long way. And I'll, I'll get into what that specific piece of context means when we look at the, the, the way in which the conversation has been had about Israel-Palestine. But they have achieved more. In four days of a ceasefire than they have with two months of fighting. And, and let's take another step back, right? Because we were bombarded with all this war hawk nonsense about how they need to fight war. Oh, they have to destroy Hamas. Oh my God, we, we can't have a peace. All those, all those fucking baboons who took to Fox News. I'm talking about Lindsey Graham, Nikki Haley. Finish them. We're going to go bomb Iran's oil. We're going to take Iran out of the oil business. And those baboons on the, the stage during the Republican primary. We had, what was it, Tim Scott. Talking about we're, we're going to bomb Iran. And, and that's just the, the accepted position. We're going to go to war. Why? Because Israel's at war. So obviously we have to go to war. We can't let them have all the fun. We can't have peace with Hamas. We're going we're gonna to fund Israel's war with $14 billion, and then we're going to give Hamas hundreds of millions in humanitarian aid so they can continue the fight. All this nonsense. Jordan Peterson, Peterson, Jordan Peterson saying, give them hell, Netanyahu, as if Netanyahu was a war hero now. Is he is is he the new Winston Churchill? I, I thought Zelensky was Churchill. Give him hell, Netanyahu. Ben Shapiro going on tirades about how we have to destroy the Hamas terrorist savage barbarians. All this talk, all this yip yap, all this nonsense, all this sick, mad nonsense about killing people. Thirteen thousand people dead in Gaza, going along with that nonsense, and we could have had a ceasefire this entire fucking time. Oh, and by the way, there there was no Hamas base under Shifa, the the largest hospital in Gaza, like the Israelis said that there would be, no tunnels, no base, no no bunker, no nothing. So those lives at that hospital were lost for nothing. Hospitals across Gaza put under siege and, and running low on fuel. Babies dying because the machines meant to keep them alive weren't functioning. People being amputated at staggering rates because the proper medical equipment simply wasn't there to give them proper treatment. 
all this for nothing. We could have had a ceasefire the entire time. And for just a moment, as we take yet another step back, take yet another step back. As a matter of fact, we'll take a, a couple steps back because now we're going to step back from Israel. We're going to step back from Palestine. Can we acknowledge the absurdity of the public conversation around Israel-Palestine? With, with the proper context that these two have been at war for decades, right? With that in mind, let's really think about how we've sat here over the course of two months, going into month number three, listening to hundreds of hours, well, perhaps not actually listening to that, but there is hundreds of hours worth of de discussion, debate, and argument, and probably millions of comments on social media and posts about the subject matter of Israel-Palestine. All of this and all these, these moral quandaries and accusations uh, of bad moral character, all this moral browbeating over what ultimately amounts to a raid in a war. Think about that. With the context that Israel and Palestine have been at war for over half a century, and that the Israelis are an occupying force in the territory that belongs to Palestine, according to the 1967 borders, the internationally recognized borders of Israel and Palestine. They're at war for over half a century. Israel is an occupying force in the parts of the, in the territory that belongs to Palestine. Palestine conducts a raid against a country they are at war with, Israel, and they kill 1,200 people. It is savage. It is barbaric. It's war is what it is. It is an atrocity. But then let's look at how we've responded and the, the nature of the conversation over here for the past two months has been to make moral judgments about a raid between two combatant nations who've been at war for over half a century. We have been making moral judgments about a raid conducted by a combatant nation against another combatant nation whom they are at war with and have been at war with for over half a century. How silly are we? How, and what was accomplished, mind you, when, when, while people were over here simping for Palestine, uh, well, Hamas, simping for Israel, not holding either, Nam one of them accountable for their actions, how exactly did the Hamas attack occur? Why didn't the, the why didn't Mozad know about it? Why did they ignore the tip that they got from the Israeli government, not the Israel, the Egyptian government? Why did they ignore that? Didn't did they not see the hundreds of men in pickup trucks coming towards the border? How'd they get through? How'd they get through? You have a wall. You have checkpoints. How'd they just walk through? Well, you you didn't see those men on paragliders? You didn't see them? 
You can see everything else. You can see everything that moves in Gaza, but you can't see men on paragliders. How'd they get in? Why didn't you shoot them? You shot at everything else that came at the wall. Why was the IDF so slow to respond? No accountability. No, no accountability. Why are you killing civilians at almost 10 to 1 ratio to Hamas? Going off of Israel's numbers that they claim to have killed uh, one, one, uh, 1,500 Hamas since October the 7th, which are probably inflated numbers. Likely heavily inflated, to be quite honest, with the way they label anybody a, a damn terrorist. And there's no accountability there either. You just call anybody a terrorist, and then you you bomb a refugee camp, you bomb a hospital, you go sh- you go getting into shootouts with Hamas over the the largest hospital in Gaza, claiming to have tunnels underneath it, and there's nothing there. All the while, Hamas is underground in tunnels and bunkers that you know exist. Yet you're bombing apartment complexes. No accountability. No accountability to be had from the Israel simps. And then, and then Palestine simps are sitting there going, oh, well, what did you expect was going to happen when you oppress the people? And well, yeah, that's true. All right, that's true. You, and that's something that the Israel simps don't ever want to acknowledge, that there was history prior to October the 7th. They'll never acknowledge that. They'll take that shit to the grave. History began on October the 7th, 2023. Nothing happened before. It's like fucking China with the Tiananmen massacre. Nothing happened on that day. Nothing happened before. Okay. And then the the, the Hamas simps who will sit there and act like Hamas wasn't every bit as well aware of the fact that Israel doesn't give a goddamn about civilian casualties when they attacked Israel. They knew that the Israelis have a, a stated doctrine of collective punishment. They knew that by attacking Israel, the Israelis would make a much more concerted effort to kill Palestinian civilians. They, Israel doesn't fight Hamas head on. They fight the Palestinian civilian population. And you can see that with the way they put Gaza under siege. You can see that the way they... they ethnically cleanse the Palestinians from the West Bank. 97% of the West Bank is under control of the Israelis. And think about that. The Palestinians only get 3% of their own fucking land. Of course they're going to strike you. Of course they're going to strike you. But of course, striking at Israel is going to get you a reaction. Not a single one of these Hamas simps want to acknowledge that Hamas like any person with common sense would be well aware that attacking Israel, however justified you may have been, was going to get you a response. No accountability for the, for the 13,000 Palestinians who are dead as a result of that reaction incurred by Hamas's attack. All these people who just want to end the conversation with, oh, but our side was justified, therefore it's okay. Therefore, we don't need to look at how this happened. Therefore, we don't need to look at the body count. We don't need to look at any of that because our reaction was justified. La, 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 we're not going to look at it. All these moral judgments, all this insanity that we have, as Americans have had to go through over a foreigner's war, and not even just a foreigner's war, but over a raid conducted in a singular war that has been going on for 50 years. And we're sitting here making moral judgments about one side or the other. Oh, the Israelis are the good guys because they, they, 
They let you know when they're going to bomb your apartment complex, okay? They don't want to kill you. They just happen to kill 10 times as many civilians as the total number of people who died on October the 7th. They, they don't want to kill you, they say. We just happened to kill over 10,000 civilians. It, it, just, it just happened. We don't know how it happened. It just happened. We, we don't want to kill you. We just, we just happened to, oops, my bullet strayed and I hit a civilian. Oops, my bomb fell off and I hit a civilian. Oops, there's no tunnels under Shiva. Oops, I dropped a bomb in a refugee camp. Oops, oops, oops. All, all these oopsies. And we're, and we're sitting here making moral judgments about how Hamas is so sick and barbaric. They, they raped women and children, which they did. Yeah, it is sick. It is barbaric. Israel has a right to respond. Israel has a right to defend itself. Yeah, by killing 13,000 civilians in Gaza. Yeah. What did you accomplish? No, and there's no accountability. I, I just, I can't stand the public conversation around it. I can't stand it. There's no accountability. Neither one of these simps, these stands, so to speak, want to hold their side accountable for even a second. A valid question it was brought up by the, the pro-Israel side. Palestine's been given all this money and all this aid from various countries around the world. Why are there no bomb shelters? Great question. Why are there no bomb shelters? You know what the Israelis are going to do the second you get into a fight, and you know that you've been at war with them this entire time. You know that every time Hamas attacks Israel, you get bombed. Why do you have no bomb shelters? Great question. Does that excuse Israel dropping bombs on apartment complexes? No. But let's have some accountability here. Like, my God, it's just, it's been such a slog. It has been such a slog. And I, I'm sure you feel the same as I do, fucking listening to these people day in and day out. Well, maybe you, you don't tune into politics like that, in, in which case, God bless you, don't. <laughs> oh, but it's just been one of the most annoying features of this war. It, it, these people are worse than the, the Ukraine simps were back when the Ukraine war first started and everyone was putting Ukraine flags in their bios. People were putting up their little bumper stickers. Stop Putin. Stop war. Oh, we're <laughs> the, the, the little Ukraine shaped emblems on the, their cars. You know, you remember way back a million years ago when that happened? The, the, the simps of today are worse than them. Oh. No accountability. Nothing's going to change. No, no one's going to hold the other responsible. No one's going to hold their own side that they're simping for responsible. They, they just want to end the conversation with our side was justified because this action happened before. Therefore, the reaction was justified, and we don't need to look at the consequences of the reaction. Action, reaction, consequence? No. It's action, reaction. Was the reaction justified? No, 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 no. That, that's what they want. But the real world is action, reaction, consequence. Not action, reaction. Oh, but was the reaction justified? Was the reaction moral? Was, was the reaction okay and acceptable? Was the reaction disproportionate? Of course Israel's reaction was disproportionate. The problem isn't that it was disproportionate. The problem is that you've killed a disproportionate number of civilians to Hamas. And you claim to not be fighting the Palestinians. The problem 
is that you have allegedly killed 1,500 Hamas, but 13,000 Palestinian civilians. That's the problem. You've killed all... You've... Uh, I got the math a little bit wrong in last week's episode. It was... Uh, last week, it would have been like six or seven to one. Well, no, it would... It, last week's episode with the numbers I used, it would have been six to one. So that'd be... For one... For out of every seven people, you'd kill one Hamas. That, that would have been the numbers, the, the right math. Uh, but now the numbers actually support my math. Uh, you know, you just re- replace that 11,000 with the 13,000. One out of every eight people now is, is how many you've killed. The, the, the ratio got worse. And this is assuming that their numbers are true. And we know they're fluffed. We know the Israelis are lying. How do we know? Because the Israelis label everybody of terrorists. They bomb an apartment complex. Oh, there was a terrorist there. They bomb a refugee camp. Oh, there was a terrorist there. Is it true that Hamas does use human shield? Yes, they do. But you can't use that as an excuse to go bombing everything in fucking Gaza. It's... My goodness. And and the reason I take more issue with Israel than I do with Palestine is because Israel is the one that is state-sanctioned by the U.S. government. Israel is the one that all this money is going to go to. Israel is the one that we're even in this mess to begin with for because Israel is... A long-standing U.S. ally. Ooh. It's so sick that after all this, we could have had peace this entire time. How many of these people, these 13,000 people in, in Gaza, and hell, considering that the war has been going on for a lot longer than October the 7th, the, the two months since October the 7th, the war has been going on the entire time. We could have had peace ages ago. They can come to a ceasefire. Okay, well, why couldn't you come to a peace? You can agree on a ceasefire, but you can't agree on a peace deal? People want to talk about, oh, October the 7th, October the 7th, uh, 1,200, 1,400 Israelis died. The number was 1,400, but they they uh, revised it down to 1,200. That's why. I, so if there's a discrepancy between the number you have in your head and the, the 1,200 I'm using, that that's where I'm coming from. They got revised down by 200. Oh, there were 1,200 people that died. Well, maybe, just maybe, if you ended the war, these people would be alive. How many people would still be alive if we had a working peace deal between Israel and Palestine? How many people would still be alive? All 13,000 of these people might. Maybe they had uh, sicknesses and illnesses that would have taken them out. But I can guarantee you the vast majority of them would still be alive. I can guarantee you that the 1,200 Israelis who died on October the 7th would still be alive. I can guarantee you that a lot of people whose names we will never know because they died when the fighting was quiet. I can guarantee you that a lot of those people would still be alive had we only committed to peace. Because like Andrew Tate says, and he was very 100% accurate on this, and I give credit where credit is due, peace is always worth the discussion. And looking back on these the two months of chaos, he was 100% right. And we can see the consequences of going along with ideas contrary to that. Peace is always worth the discussion. But now we'll talk about the, the resource dimensions to this war. Now that we've 
thoroughly gone over the lack of accountability for the two sides and the fact that we could have had a peace this entire time and the absurdity of making moral judgments about a raid conducted during a war. Oh, the Hamas, oh, October the 7th, October the 7th. There was no justification for this. You don't need a justification. You're at war. It's so, you know, I'm going to leave it alone. <laughs> I'm going to leave it alone. But a very interesting dynamic has sort of uh, been brought up to discussion. Uh, something I was not aware of was resources in Gaza. And so now there's a, a resource war uh, or a, a resource war dimension to the war, if, if uh, that makes sense or if that's the right way to put it, I'm not entirely sure. But there's a resource war dimension to the war. So I'll, I'll say that and it makes sense and we understand what I mean. So a peculiar piece of info has been making its rounds primarily through the pro-Palestinian side of the Israel-Palestine debate. An article that I grabbed titled the economic costs of the Israeli occupation for the Palestinian people, the unrealized oil and natural gas potential. A really, really, really long title, but that's that's all of it. <laughs> in, ca in case you're wondering what the title was, that is the title. It's, it's very long-winded. I'll say it again, just in case you want to look it up. The title is The Economic Costs of the Israeli Occupation for the Palestinian people, the unrealized oil and natural gas potential. <clears throat> That's the whole title. I'm not going to say that shit again. Uh, but yeah, the article I grabbed here uh, lays out how Palestine is sitting on a huge reserve of not just oil, but natural gas. Well, it, it's a modest reserve of oil, but it's, it's the natural gas that's huge. And it says, quote, the new discoveries of oil and natural gas in the Levant Basin, amounting to 122 trillion cubic feet of natural gas at a net value of $453 billion in 2017 prices, and 1.7 billion barrels of recoverable oil at a net value of about $71 billion. Uh, again, referring to 2017 prices. End quote. Huge. Huge natural resources, energy resources that the, that the people of Palestine are sitting under. The oil, if I'm not mistaken, the basin there is primarily in the West Bank. However, the natural gas is primarily off the coast of the Gaza Strip. And again, going back to my prognostications about Turkey potentially making moves here if they follow through on their threat to invade Israel, which if the ceasefire holds, they won't follow through on that threat and that'll be speculation into the wind. We'll see if the ceasefire holds. But there's a lot of natural gas in the Eastern Mediterranean and the Palestinian part is actually a relatively small piece of it because uh, they're exclusive economic zone is relatively small but there's a lot of natural gas there and we're, in the event that they would be allowed to extract this they would easily become energy independent easily if they if they were to extract the oil alone they'd be energy independent and they'd be a, a minor exporter of oil but if they got their hands on the natural gas resources off their coastline in the mediterranean 
they could become a major, major energy exporter because, again, Palestine is really small and it doesn't have that many people. You have about 7 million Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza combined. You're about 7 million Palestinians. So you're talking about oil and natural gas reserves beyond anything that they're possibly going to be able to consume themselves. They could build industry with that type of energy. With that much energy uh, uh, for that cheap, because once you have that kind of a, a glut, once you produce energy in such uh, amounts that you can't consume anymore, the price comes down, at least in your home market. You can have industry that's cost competitive because you have cheap energy. And quite frankly, cheap energy is a prerequisite for industry anyway. You can't have industry with expensive energy. That's why Germany is deindustrializing now. They don't have access to cheap Russian energy. That's why various parts of the third world and China are in, in industrializing. At the rate they're going. That's why Russia has been so successful with its reindustrialization. Cheap energy is a necessity for industry. If Palestine got their hands on their own energy resources, if they were able to extract it in sufficient quantity, they could have energy independence for a hundred years or more. They could be able to support and sustain their own, their population as is that their population could grow, right? They could actually sit there and become a, a, uh, a Singapore hell, except a Singapore that's sitting on natural gas and oil reserves. And because they can't consume all that energy themselves, even with industry, because industry is very energy intensive, they could be a massive energy exporter. Mean that even more wealth gets brought in it be through the sale of this resource. And you have direct access to the Mediterranean, meaning you can sell that energy directly to the people who are starved the most of it. You can sell it to Europe. You can sell it to North Africa. You can sell it to Turkey, shoot. But the Europeans would be the big market for the Palestinians if they could get their oil and their natural gas there. That'd be huge for Palestine, huge for Palestine. If they could get the, if they could extract the resources and then build a pipeline. So of course they're being sabotaged. And this is sort of the resource war dynamic to this war. I mean, they're sitting on $423 billion in natural gas reserves and 71 billion in oil reserves. Now, obviously you're not going to be, that's not every year you're going to be able to extract two, 423 billion uh, in natural gas, 71 billion in oil. But let's say you, you can extract uh, maybe you will, what a fraction of a percent, uh, 0.1% of that every year. That's still huge new revenues coming in. Cause uh, what, what's 0.1% of 423 billion dollars in natural gas What's was 0.1% of that. Well, it'd be 423 million, 423 million. That's huge. That is huge. You can do a lot with that. You put it in the right places. What's 0.1% of 71 billion. Why it'd be 71 million. So you're talking about a half a billion in rev total revenues that they could be bringing in yearly. They can develop with that. And then you, once you build industry with all that cheap industry, now you can create new goods and an economy that isn't based off of the extraction of resources, 
but an, an industrial economy where you can provide new good, where you can literally take resources and turn them into something that didn't exist before. Now you have value added. Now you have a, an economy of scale that can integrate into other industrial economies. Now you have value added. Uh, I forget if I said that before, you have value added. So now you can, you can specialize and go up the chain instead of being a one trick pony economy dependent on the oil. And this cheap energy makes that possible. But they're being denied that by the Israeli occupation. Again, 97% of the West Bank is occupied by Israel, where 73% is under direct Israeli control, 24% is under joint Israeli-Palestinian control, but we know who has the controlling stake in that, Rabat. We, we know who has the, the controlling stake in that. It's the Israelis. So 97% of Palestine is occupied by Israel. And that's just looking at the West Bank. Parts of Gaza are occupied by Israel. Israel wants more of Gaza. They, they had a million people flee to the south. And now there's word getting out that the Israelis want even more people to flee from southern Gaza. And it's like, well, okay, where exactly are they supposed to go? Oh, they want them to go to all the Arab countries. They want them to go to Europe. They want to, Israel wants to create a migration crisis for the sake of ethnic cleansing so they can have all of Palestine and everything in Palestine except for the Palestinians. Because once you have that, you have all of Palestine's energy and natural gas resources. resources. And that would be huge for Israel themselves. Granted, you'd be better off just working with the Palestinians, but shoot, don't let common sense get in the way. But this is, a, this is one of the dynamics of this war, and it's perhaps one of the reasons why the occupation doesn't end. Israel wants to extract Palestine's resources, and they don't want the Palestinians to get access to these resources, their own resources, which is so... Uh, it's it's an, it's such an American thing to, <laughs> to uh, but at the very least the Israelis are trying to extract some of it. No, no, but they they do the American thing where we we're gonna keep some of it, but we're not gonna actually tap the full potential of it. We're not gonna let you get in on the sale of your own resource. We're not gonna let you have a stake in maintaining this. No, we're we're gonna try to take all of it for ourselves and nothing for you. All, all for ourselves and nothing but you. But honestly, it while that is a major contributing factor to why the U.S. is there, the energy resources as well, uh, the U.S. and Israel sort of have different approaches to this because we're not there to get the oil. Like, that's a, it's a common trope. Oh, the U.S., the Middle East, oh, we want the oil, we want the oil. We don't actually want the oil. If, if you really think about it for a, a few moments, you'll start to notice a really strong inconsistency with that narrative and the reality that we get. We're told that America goes into these places to get the oil and we have to we have to keep the oil out of the hands of the terrorists who own the, the land that the oil is under. Yeah, all this, this interventionist nonsense. But when you look at what actually happens versus the stated goal, which is to get the oil, we don't actually want the oil. 
and and this is not just me going well we have plenty of oil here in the united states we don't need their oil it's it's kind of that but it's a little bit different right because the goal is not actually to get the oil and to extract it it's simply to have the control because although it's not about taking the resources like, like it's not about taking palestine's resources though that might be a goal of the israelis and is something that they'll try to do it's not the goal of the u.s the u.s our leadership is interested in control they want control you see when you look at how we we, we have this obsession with oh we we're, we're in the middle east so we can get the oil but if it was really about the oil we'd be extracting more of it you know we'd be if it was about getting the oil we'd be building refineries and oil rigs in the all these countries that we're occupying if it was about the oil we'd be building refineries and oil rigs in the united states if it was about the oil we would actually be uh, passively a, a slightly beneficial force for these countries by helping them develop their own natural resources now what happens after that is uh, then we could we could argue oh we're not letting them access the profits of their own resources which of course would be a problem but at the very least the the resources would be extracted everyone would have cheap energy at the very least you could say that there is a clearly defined benefit to the us being there if we were there for the oil everyone gets cheap oil and i'm not talking cheap as in uh oh 60 70 dollars a barrel the way it was and they've all america provides stability to the region you know that that common lie no we we're providing stability even as we bomb people into the stone age but i mean cheap cheap energy like 40 35 dollars a barrel for crude oil cheap cheap energy like tapping iran's natural resources iraq syria's instead of grabbing control of the existing production not expanding it not doing anything with it not building any new pipelines and then telling everyone else that you're not allowed to have it that's that defeats the purpose of getting the oil if you're not going to do anything with it you're not going to do anything it defeats the purpose and again there's the obvious problem of the the oil narrative that we're over there to get the oil because if we're if our goal is to get oil we don't need to travel thousands of miles away from our own shores to get oil we have more oil here than iraq or syria or palestine are ever gonna be able to fathom we're already the largest producer of oil and we're quite frankly not even close to tapping our full potential like there are millions of barrels of oil a day that we could be extracting right now and because it's shale oil you have to frack to get it we'd be producing massive amounts of natural gas as a byproduct of breaking apart the shale rock. If it was about the oil, we'd be extracting oil in the United States. We'd be expanding oil extraction in all countries in the Middle East, but we don't do that. We don't do any of that. So what are we really there for? It's about control. It's about control. Like, like, a, like a child who has a bucket of toys a child who goes to his friend's house sees their bucket of toys takes the bucket of toys and then doesn't let the kid who owns the bucket of toys play with his own toys that's what we do in the middle east 
We're not using him. We're not actually playing with the toys. We don't do shit with the toys. We just don't want you to have it. It's control. And when you understand this, the sinister nature of a lot of the people who run world governments, particularly in Europe and the United States, because that's sort of the, the nest egg of the globalist cabal, if I have to give them a word, but the globalists, the anti-humanists, they, they've set up shop in the West, for lack of a better term, and the U.S. is the, the imperial center for the empire. Their goal isn't to extract resources. Their goal isn't to make life better for everybody because that's what cheap energy would do. It would make it easier to live. They don't want it easier to live. They want control because remember, these are anti-humanists. They hate people. They don't want to be able to support larger populations. They want depopulation. They think there's too many people. It's about control. Uh, but if, if your goal is depopulation, you can't have someone else controlling resources that are outside of your boundaries and extracting those resources to make life easier for other people because then you can have larger populations you can have more you can have more for less more for less is what the extraction of resources uh, at scale allows you to do these people don't want that it's not about getting the oil it's not about getting the natural gas this is instead about control Control to avoid abundance, because abundance is, is the bane of these people's existence. They hate abundance. They, they and you can see that they, they hate an abundance of people. They hate an abundance of resources. They hate the abundance of food. They hate the abundance of production, because industry makes you able to produce things in great abundance. They hate abundance because abundance enables you to support larger populations. Again, I, I talked about it when I talked about how the green, the climate agenda is anti-humanist because you want to take away the energy inputs, the, the coal, the oil, the natural gas, the nuclear power that can make energy, that can make energy cheap and therefore can make industry cheap enough to operate. If you take away the energy that makes industry possible, you lose the benefits of industry. And one of the biggest benefits of the industrial revolution was the ability to support larger populations through industrialized, mechanized farming. In applying the industrial technologies to improve farming output, you can grow more food. That was one of the biggest, biggest benefits of the Industrial Revolution. That's why we went from 1 billion people in 1800 to 2 billion in 1930. 1 billion to 2 billion over the space of 130 years. Mind you, it took all of human history, almost 6,000 years to get up to 1 billion people in 1800. And we doubled that in a century and a half, not even a century and a half. In 1930, we had 2 billion people. And then from 1930 to 2023, uh, not even 100 years later, 90 years later, we doubled we quadrupled that industry makes abundance of people possible but industry is made possible through the abundance of resources mineral and energy and food because you have to feed the people who work in the factories but these people are anti-humanists they want control so for a number of various agendas but i'll focus on the control aspect here these people running the the world, these world economic forum types, the globalists, you know, the, the people who 
put us in these strange conundrums where we could use our own resources, but we don't. And then we obsess about things that don't work. You know, those people who rave about depopulation, they don't like abundance because abundance makes control difficult. It makes it very difficult, uh, particularly when you're looking at resources and resource extraction, because if a resource is being extracted in large volumes from places that you don't control, first of all, and then if it's being extracted in many different places, some of which may be in your control and others may be outside your control, if you have all these different zones and areas of production and refining and extraction, you can't control the supply. You can't control the supply. You can't control the price. You can't control anything other than what you have. But if you try to do the things that they want to do, which is to kill people, they want to starve you and make life miserable or stagnant at best, well, if you do that, then other people are going to go, oh, well, they're not using their resources, so I'm going to extract more of mine so I can get more bang for my buck. And then you're completely undermined. Your control is undermined by other people controlling those resources that you don't control. You can't have uh, uh, the Great Reset if other countries are still using fossil fuels. You can't have the Green New Deal and paint that as a picture of the what the entire world has to do because they, they're not content with controlling countries. They want to control the world. You can't force the entire world to go along with the technology if you don't control everything about it. Abundance makes controlling something very difficult because when you have multiple points of extraction and they're all moving, uh, they're all extracting at capacity and at scale, well, you, you can't control them all. You, it takes manpower, it takes capital, it's, it takes people to go control all these places. It's better and easier, however, if you have scarcity, scarcity makes control very, very easy. Because if you have scarcity where a limited amount of a resource is extracted from only a limited number of places that all of which you control, if you control the places of extraction, you can control the amount of extraction. And if you can control the amount of extraction, you can then control whether or not there's abundance. And there's the key. It's about control. If, and you need scarcity for that type of control when you're talking about resources. Because then you can throttle the resource extraction by limiting the number of places that where you can extract it through regulations. Oh, and, and military occupations of other resources extraction zones, you know, limit the, the number of places where it can be extracted and then limit the amount of, of re the resource where it is extracted. You control everything. You can control how much is extracted, how fast you can, and then you can therefore control the price. Once you control the supply, you can control where it goes, who gets what. You can control it all if you have scarcity. Scarcity being the opposite of abundance. Abundance makes control difficult. Scarcity makes control easy. And since they want control, because they're control freaks, and they, they have very freakish designs on the human population, they have to control it. So how do you keep Palestine, who has every incentive of developing these resources to uh, abolish poverty in their own nation, how do you 
prevent them from creating this abundance that could actually make life livable for people in Palestine and Israel, quite frankly. And you, you and this energy, which could serve as the, the basis of a mutual cooperation between Israel and Palestine, how do you keep them from having peace? How do you keep them from creating this abundance that can create peace between these two peoples and prosperity where the both of them can have rising populations, rising standards of living and low cost of living? How do you stop that from happening? How do you stop them from building a pipeline from the Eastern Mediterranean to Europe to extend that prosperity, to extend that abundance to other peoples? How do you stop that? Well, you don't let them extract the resource. It's all about control so that you can prevent abundance. It's all about control so that you can create scarcity where there really shouldn't be and there shouldn't be scarcity, not with the amount of resources we have on this great big earth and not with the amount of varied interests who have every interest in extracting those resources, not with the amount of people, these markets the, from these massive numbers of people who live on this earth who would consume those resources and thus create the economic incentive to extract them. Abundance of people abundance breeds more abundance if you have an abundance of a resource if you have abundance of food abundance of energy you can create an abundance of people which then creates an abundance of markets and wealth and potential wealth which you can then use to justify the extraction of more of those resources creating even bigger abundance a positive feedback loop but these anti-humanist control freaks these globalists who don't want to control nations but they want to control the world don't want abundance they don't want you alive quite frankly so abundance goes against everything that they stand by. They want to establish control so they can create scarcity, which then reinforces that control. Because once you have the scarcity, oh, oops, you don't have enough food to supply all these people. So fewer people are going to be able to eat. So now there's going to be fewer people in total. Oops, the market got smaller. So we're going to have to extract fewer of the resource. Oops, now there's even fewer people and you can get a, a negative feedback loop in that way once you establish control. Scarcity can breed scarcity in that way if that is your intent. But abundance breeds abundance. Abundance destroys that system of control. And that's why they don't want it. That's why they don't want us to use our oil, our natural gas, our coal, our nuclear resources that we have in here in America. We have we have all that and we can create ridiculous abundance in the United States. We need look no further than our own history, uh, circa 1900 and earlier. We created massive abundance in a very short space of time too, mind you. Like we, we were a backwater in 1800. And then we, in a hundred years, we became the, the industrial power of the world. That's the power of abundance. And we have everything in abundance that we need. Food, water, clean drinking water, we have people, well, a lot of people, and a lot of resources, mineral and energy. This is why they don't want, and it's true for many other countries around the world. They don't want abundance. They want control so they can create scarcity. Scarcity then enables them to reinforce that control. They get depopulation. They get, they get a number of things out of having control. But you, have, you really have to think in the opposite of how you would run a country if you want to understand these people. Your goal is to grow the population. Your goal is prosperity. Their goal is to destroy people. Their goal is to make your life miserable so that you don't want to have kids. It's it's really sick in that way. And it's a shame that we're run by these types of people, but understanding them is the first part of defeating them. And abundance is one of the ways in which we can defeat them.
I am an advocate for using our resources. But yeah, they don't want us to have these resources so we can create abundance. They want they don't want Europe to have it. They they don't want the world to have abundance because when you have abundance, you also get the ability to support larger populations of people and they don't get to have their control. And that's bad for them because they want to cull the human herd. They want to cull the population. They think there's too many people. They are anti-humanist and we should respect them for the threat that they are to us all. That they are. But abundance is the key to defeating them. And abundance could be the key to peace between Israel and Palestine. It doesn't have to be a root of war between them. But unfortunately, uh, it's being used that way. It's being used that way. But alas, that is all I've got for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed uh, today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The, the world is changing so many changes. Oh, right, right, right. I, I was supposed to, <laughs> I was supposed to detail uh, the changes. Uh, let me let me cover that, and then we'll we'll end the episode. Right, right, right. Let me let me go over those thoughts that I was laying out to you way back in the in the beginning of the episode. Because I was talking about how we're in times of these great change and how it's manifesting itself with these uh, these the far right taking over Europe, which is really just people who don't want nonsense and bad immigration policies people who just want an end to failed policy who are being labeled all these terrible things and in the process you're going to create those terrible things if you keep going but we see these massive changes happening like we live in these great times of change i'll just that'll be the the sort of premise here great time to change we're seeing the second american revolution right now where new york and chicago and martha's vineyard of all places have turned staunchly against immigration i'm i still have my eyes on california uh, that'll be now that will be one thing to behold when california turns their back on immigration i don't think it's going to take that long i mean they're already upset with gavin newsom because he man he found a way to clean up the homelessness for xi jinping <laughs> But he couldn't do it for his own citizens, for for their sake. No, he had to do it for Xi Jinping, because Xi had standards, and he forced California to live up to them. It's a little embarrassing, but it's comical at the same time. It's like we're okay with living in filth until we have company, <laughs> then we have to clean up. But yeah, so there's that. Uh, but yeah, we have the second American Revolution. We have New Mexico would becoming essentially a sanctuary for the second amendment where the governor tried to ban the guns and then they they, they stood outside the capitol open carrying the guns and the governor went into a, a sort of micro exile for a, a few days and she came back but yeah all this these changes i i made the comparison to like um these various voting blocks that we see in the united states being like frogs frozen in ice Right, because there's like a tree frog that, that can that it has antifreeze in its blood, so you can freeze it, and in a, in a block of ice, and then it'll once the ice thaws, the frog starts to move again. And I compared American voting blocks like to frogs. These tree frogs, you freeze them, you put them in the block, you can slice the block up, uh, assuming that we're not cutting through the frogs in the process, and you can move the blocks around, and then you get. You, your two-party system. These blocks of frogs go here. These blocks of frogs go there. And these are the voting groups and the people and the, within them. Voting blocks. There we go. And the frogs are the individual voters. 
What we're seeing right now in the United States as things heat up, uh, metaphorically, is that the ice thaws and now the frogs are hopping everywhere and you're finding frogs and end up in places that you never thought you'd see them. You never thought people who would never have voted for Trump just a year ago or two years ago or five years ago are now singing his praises, now singing his praises. And it's just across the board. There, uh, there's this poll that's been made a big deal out of, uh, you know, you know how I'm sort of straying away from polls, especially since 2020. But there's this poll that everyone's been making a big deal out of how Trump is winning in the 18 to 34 demographic. And I can believe it. All my friends. <laughs> but it's that never would have happened five years ago. Uh, 18 to 34 voting Republican. No, it, it, would, it just would never have happened. The voting blocks were frozen in place, but now they're unfrozen. And the voters are going in a lot of different places that you never would have expected to find them. The Muslims, the, the, somehow the Democrats managed to lose the Jews and the Muslims under the same presidency. Isn't that, isn't that absurd? They managed to lose both these voting blocks. They're going to lose Michigan. They're going to lose Michigan, if only because the, the Muslims didn't turn out to vote for them. I wouldn't be surprised if they went Trump, but I, I don't see how we get. I don't see how we get there. I, I'm not entirely sure how we're going to get there. That's a big jump right there. But I wouldn't put it past like America's in a, a great time of change. Like, and all this this foreign interventionism stuff, where we're getting dragged into one war, then one another alliance, and we're, as we, as we sit and watch Congress dole out billions of dollars to foreign governments, while Americans are sitting here with declining standards of living. The natural result of that is that on the other side of this revolution that we're going through, there's not going to be an interventionism in the United States anymore. You will see the America of my dreams. <laughs> you'll, you'll see a return to historic norm because that's the, the bigger trend. That's the bigger trend that I see accelerating that as I've, I've had the, the dignity and the honor of noticing way back in 2020 when I first began the podcast, that this return to historic norm, which I've identified uh, in recent months as a return to the, the pre-Columbian world era. China and India going back to their historic positions at the top of the food chain in economics and manufacturing, America will join them because, you know, we the new world wasn't in play back then, but we're going to be in play. We're still here. We have We're the third largest population on the planet. We're going to have rising populations too. China's going to have declining population. Maybe that means India takes the number one spot for a little bit, but we're going to be right up there with them. We're going to be right up there with them. A return to historic norm. The Middle East are going to be the, the middlemen between the Silk Roads of, a, of the Asian, the Eastern powers, the, the great civilizations of the East as their goods and their wares make their way to Europe, their end destination. Africa is going to become a, a source of mineral wealth again <clears throat> to, to whatever degree that that ends up being the case. Uh, some African nations are going to do great. Others will uh, probably still struggle, but they're going to be ones to look out for now. And the Middle East, my goodness, they were divided for so long. They have not been on the same page like this since the days of the Ottoman Empire. Arabia and Iran now going beyond reproachment, beyond 
their heads of state meeting for the first time in 50 years beyond the prince and the ayatollah meeting for the first time in their lives to what looks to me to be the, the beginnings of a, of a strategic partnership, uh, the multipolar world. I, I said it in last episode, I said at the beginning of this episode, the multipolar world manifesting itself independently of Russia and China, the two countries that are principally responsible for ushering in the multipolar world. It's multiplying. It's not just the BRICS now. It, like it's, it, I, I can't stress enough how important it is that this is independent of Russia and China because this hasn't happened before. This has not happened before. We see Russia return to its historic norm and probably its historic borders in the not too distant future. So much change happening. And in light of all this change, in light of these changes in the sentiments of peoples and populations and the uh, the staunchly anti-immigrant uh, nature that is going to come back to the Europeans because like, because for the longest time they've tried to be America and that's their problem. They, they try to be America. Like America has the ability to immigrate and assimilate. That's the key detail. Lots of varied and very different peoples. Europe doesn't have that ability yet. They try to be America and pretend that they do to their own detriment. And they're going to go back to being, uh, not so pro immigrant. I, I wouldn't go as far as to say racist. I think that that's a, a jump some of them may but they're not going to be so open arms towards immigrants anymore when all this is said and done and but a lot of these analysts i've noticed because it, it, it makes it hard for me because i i'm constantly searching for information <clears throat> excuse me i'm constantly searching for information to try to keep my finger on the pulse as we go along in these times of great change i've noticed a, a distinct lack of adaptability from a lot of uh, people with who who have sort of dug into their positions, dug into their their worldviews. Now, me being an observer, that is, uh, who's an isolationist, uh, I can I can observe these trends, even when they don't necessarily appeal to me. Like I don't like when we get drawn into alliances. I don't like getting lectured about how America is responsible for the entire world because democracy and because we're a superpower. So we just magically have these interests everywhere. I don't appreciate that, but I, I understand that that's the world we live in. And I can understand, I can watch the changes being made. But a lot of these people, and I can look, I'll just point the finger at Peter Zion for just a moment here. They refuse to adapt to new situations. So like uh, Peter Zion, what if Altist is some of the, that I listen to. I used to listen to Peter a lot. I used to be such a super fan. But ever since 2020, I feel like his analysis just fell off a cliff and now it's almost of no value to me anymore. And it's such, it's so odd. It's so odd to go from not being able to get enough Peter to I get nothing of value listening to what he has to say because he's just so far off the mark. He doesn't course correct. And it's the same with a lot of other uh people who dabble in geopolitics uh particularly on the independent media side uh even the ones who are sort of dedicated history youtubers they just don't doubt. like a lot of people are still under the the assumption that russia isn't going to win this war a lot of people are still under the assumption that the russians and the chinese are, are going to collapse in the, the not too distant future it's like where is the evidence for that 
because we've been hearing this collapse, this collapse, collapse, collapse for years. But where's the evidence for that? And there's just no adaptability. There's no acceptance that perhaps you got it wrong. And I can throw that out to the China uncensored crew as well, that they've been talking about China collapsing as well. You know, it just doesn't happen. But at some point, you got to do the course correction, but no one wants to do the course correction. It's as if, and from what I've observed, it, it stems from this unwillingness and this inability to question their core assumptions about the world. Because you have core assumptions about the world with which you base other assumptions off of. Like you go, democracy, good. Therefore, if there's a war between a liberal democracy and an authoritarian society, well, then the liberal democracy is obviously the good guy, you know? So that core assumption leads to other assumptions later on down the line. And the chain of assumptions goes a lot longer, Ugh, goes a lot farther than that, but I just want to keep it simple for the sake of conveying my point here. And it's not that I'm saying democracy is necessarily bad, although I prefer the republic over democracy because, well, you have to protect your minorities. Uh, you don't just want pure democracy because then you can have uh, mob rule, essentially. And that's one of the things that our founders went out of their way to avoid, which is why we have a republic. That's why. That's why all the states are represented equally in the Senate. It's not about population representation. That's what the House is for. The Senate is so that all the states who make up the United States are represented equally. It's the perfect balance. It's genius when you really dig down into it. But you have the, but alas, these people who have these, and you look at uh, intellectuals who still talk about uh, this, this, if you remember, we're going to take a step back to Ukraine. Who we'll talk about a uh, a freeze? We're going to freeze the conflict. We're going to freeze the conflict. You remember that? And how th this war was the U.S. was going to win, and how Russia was going to be destroyed, and how oh, and and before the freeze, it was oh neither side is going to win. Neither, neither side is going to win. Then before that, it was Ukraine was obviously going to win. It's only a matter of time. They, and the Russians struggled to do this much against the Ukrainians. So now it's and you, just all this really bad analysis. And it's not that the analysts themselves are bad. Because like, that, that, that's the first inclination that you have is to come to the conclusion, oh, yeah, they're bad. Yeah, they, they don't know what they're doing. They're, but I think that the low-hanging fruit is oftentimes not the right fruit to take sometimes it is and you, and you take that fruit but i think going just a tad bit deeper usually goes a long way i think the problem isn't that they're bad it's that they are unable to question core assumptions about the world in a time when the world is changing rapidly and those core assumptions which honestly a lot of them were already faulty to begin with now that the world is changing rapidly, those faulty core assumptions that they have, that they base other assumptions off of, sometimes they're able to hit the mark with those other assumptions, even when their initial premise is wrong. Like, uh, for example, what's a good example? What's a good example? Uh, so say people who go, well, Putin's Russia's authoritarian dictator they're 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 bad they're terrible at logistics they're 
They're being beaten and bloodied and bruised in Ukraine. They're suffering huge losses, all these really bad core assumptions about the war in Ukraine. But then they still come to the conclusion, but there's 100 million extra people in Russia than there is in Ukraine. So if it comes down to a war of attrition, Russia's going to win. Russia has more resources. They have more everything. You know, even with the bad core assumption, they can still get uh, the final premise correct. But it'd be it's so much easier to get those premises correct when you start with better assumptions. It's and it's this this inability. I wouldn't say refusal. Some of it it is a refusal, but most of it is just an inability to recognize that core assumptions are incorrect. And therefore, when you have core assumptions that are faulty, core assumptions that are incorrect and are not actively actually reflective of reality. When you start basing new assumptions off of those, when you start making new predictions about how things are going to go based off of bad assessments and bad core assumptions, you end up making uh, uh, bad new assumptions based off of faulty core assumptions. And then when you start making a, a new assessments and you start changing your views on the situation based off of faulty previous information like people thought the ghost of ukraine was was real people thought the ghost of kiev was real people thought the the great kiev counteroffensive was real people thought that the kherson offensive was this massive military victory when it was a withdrawal by the russian forces when you when you go in with all these bad assumptions and then you and you hold on to them without recognizing that they were not true well, the Snake Island and how all these things. When you hold on to these bad assumptions that are not true and they start piling up over time and you base new assessments of the situation off of faulty worldviews, off of faulty ideas of, that are incorrect about what happened because you haven't done the course correction to, to correct for that, you get new faulty ideas. It makes new analysis coming out from most uh, contemporaries almost obsolete from the moment it comes out of their mouth. Like, what value are we going to get from hearing that we need a peace deal in Ukraine where the two sides need to sit down and we need Ukraine's going to have to sue for peace and accept to trading land for peace? And, and, or trading land for NATO membership. You remember that we're gonna. They need to trade land for NATO membership. Again, stemming from a faulty understanding of how the war started. Because if you believe that Russia came in with imperial ambitions, they just invaded Ukraine for no reason because they they wanted to annex Ukraine. This war of empire to put the Soviet Union back together. If that's the assumption you're starting with, then you're not gonna understand why Ukraine trading land for NATO membership is a obsolete idea that has no, that can hold no water. You, you won't understand. Why won't you understand? Cause you won't have understood the actual reason why Russia invaded Ukraine to begin with NATO membership. If you don't, and if you don't understand that NATO membership is the problem, you're not going to be able to make new assessments of the situation with that in mind. And that's a problem that I've observed for a couple of years now, quite frankly, with a lot of contemporary analysis 
from a lot of people that I I rely on a lot because ah, look I'm not better than anybody I just I, I'm your humble observer but it is something that I have observed in trying to find reliable information to bring to you for the sake of this podcast and quite frankly to bring to myself because like I, I can't stand sitting there listening to somebody who's just objectively wrong and, and I know he's wrong <laughs> it's like uh, it I is I've gotten to this point where I can't sit and listen to you uh, uh, from an informative position. Like if, if, uh, if I'm listening to you being mocked for being wrong, that's one thing. But if I'm, I'm listening to this person who is wrong and I do it every now and then, you know, just to check my own biases, to get an idea of what the other side's talking about so that if some new event happens that reflects what they're talking about and, and just flies over my head, well, I'll know, okay, maybe I should listen to that guy a little bit, a little, just a little bit more later on, you know? It's healthy, even though it's unpleasant at times. But I just can't stand listening to people talking like they understand everything when they demonstrate through the lack of context and a lack of understanding of what's actually happening that they don't know anything. And again, it's not because they're bad analysts. It's that they haven't questioned core assumptions which were faulty to begin with, but now are leading them astray as we go into these times of great change. And I'm sure you've all, uh, now that I brought it up, you probably can think of a, a number of your own sources that you're listening to, aside from myself. I hope you're listening to people other than just me. But I'm sure you can also see this as well, where people have bad assumptions and sometimes they're able to, they're able to correct at the very end and get the right conclusion, even with the bad initial assumption. But the bad assumptions just build off of bad conclusions. The bad, the bad assumptions lead to bad conclusions. And then those bad conclusions are used as a basis for bad and outdated analysis that it just doesn't hold any water. It just doesn't hold any water. Like we're, uh, uh, do I even want to get into Israel Gaza with this? <laughs> Where people are, are, are talking about how, Oh, look, uh, the world, uh, Hamas is being exposed, and Hamas is going to be destroyed, and Elon Musk is on, is on board with Israel's mission to destroy Hamas. I was just, I, I'm taking this from a, a Dr. Steve Turley video I just watched, you know, because I think it's it's also a good example. Oh, the the world is uniting against Hamas, and they're being exposed. Well, no, they're not. Well, uh, let me rephrase that. The world may be against Hamas, but that does not necessarily mean they're against Palestine. And that certainly doesn't mean that they're with Israel. If you go into this with the assumption that Israel is the good guy and Hamas is the bad guy, therefore it's okay what Israel does in Palestine, you've already, you've already missed the plot. You're not going to notice that the entire Arab and Islamic world just united for the first time in centuries over the Israel-Palestine issue. You're not going to notice that. You're not going to even, it's going to fly over your head that that was an example of the multipolar world manifesting independently of Russia and China. It's just not even going to register. And you're not going to understand the significance of global public opinion. If, you're, if your understanding is, though, is only from a, a sort of European-American point of view, you're going to completely miss that the rest of the world is on board with Palestine, not Israel. You're gonna you're gonna miss these things. 
if your assumption is that, well, we've come to this conclusion, therefore it is the conclusion, well, you, you're, you've already lost. And that's a problem with a lot, a lot of analysis today. And I'm sure that I, you can probably even think of examples where I've gotten it wrong. <laughs> but we're, we're not going to talk about that. We're, we're, this isn't about me. It's their turn. But, but yeah, I've noticed that. I've, I've noticed that. And as we, it, it just gets worse. It gets more noticeable every week as time goes on because every week the world changes more and those changes then compound on new t changes and the analysis just doesn't keep up and in trying to understand why it doesn't keep up i've <laughs> i have come to the conclusion myself that it's because you're they're weighed down a lot of these analysts could completely outpace me if they wanted to if they had the information that i will they do have the information. I'm not working with anything private, but if they were listening to the same sources that I am in the way that they listen to say like a, a mainstream media source, if they were getting their news primarily from independent sources, the way that I do specifically from the list of people that I get it from, they could completely outpace me on the analysis that they wanted to, if they use that as the basis for their analysis. Like I have no illusions of just being uh, a, a prodigal, the, the the oracle of chicago <laughs> i i'm not even gonna pretend i'm not even gonna pretend that i, I I'm, I'm that i'm like that i'm not i'm not gonna do that i am your humble observer they could outdo me if they wanted to if they had the right information to base their analysis off of if they had the right core assumptions going in to a problem but that's the problem they don't they have these really bad, faulty world assumptions that the United States is going to be there forever. You, you know, you go, the United States can never go home. We can never leave. We can never leave other countries alone because uh, democracy, freedom, uh, yada, 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 uh, complex world, complex problems. We can't go it alone, blah, blah, blah. All these really bad assumptions, which assume that the United States, uh, well, to look at the empire, they assume that the, the U.S. empire is going to be there forever. They assume that it can be there forever. That's right off the bat, a terrible assumption. Why would you ever assume that? Why would you ever assume that? It, it, it's it's crazy that these are the, the core assumptions we have. Like you're going to assume that the United States is going to be in the Middle East forever. They're going to be in Europe forever. They're going to be in Asia forever. How? What empire has ever lasted forever? It's just not, it, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. And they just can't foresee a future, even with the, the rise of America first and MAGA in the United States and this sharply insular turn in America, they can't even see like 10 feet in front of them where, okay, well, maybe maybe with people in America, America demanding that America focuses attention on the United States instead of on insert country here, that that's going to have an effect at some point on the u.s foreign policy it's just it just flies over the head even though it's an obvious consequence of u.s domestic policy and well politics i should say the obvious consequence of u.s domestic politics it's it's astounding to watch i'll say that much uh sometimes it's entertaining and other times it's frustrating because you know i am actively looking for information that i can use on this podcast and sometimes uh, they don't make it easy for me. I'll say that much, but yeah, it's, 
yeah, there's a lot of struggling, a lot of struggling to keep up with the the changing of the tides. Uh, hopefully, I can keep up, but there's no guarantee of that. Uh, I I won't pretend. I won't pretend. Uh, I remember when I got the the Russo-Ukrainian war wrong. I I thought the Russians were still in the north when they had they pulled out ages ago. And I had to make that course correction. And luckily for me, I had enough integrity as a person to do so live on air. As painful as it was, oh, saying saying I'm wrong, I can't stand it. That's why I try to be right. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah. Maybe you've noticed the same. Maybe I'm losing it. There's always a possibility. But that, my lovely listeners, is all I've got for you today. Yeah, now that is one hell of a way to end an episode. But that's all I've got. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing, folks. But no matter what happens, we are going to have fun watching that change together. Now, I've been your host, Haishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So, till we meet again next Monday, servus.